I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles now, if you would, to the Gospel of Mark. Our scripture reading this morning continues from where we left off last week in chapter 8. We'll be reading verses 34 to 38 as our passage this morning. And I want you to note the title as we begin this morning. What is a Christian without the cross? I think you'll see the relevance as we get into the text this morning. So Mark chapter 8, reading, beginning at verse 34, English Standard Version translation. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and evil generation, sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Let's pray. Father, these are very somber words. So we pray that your Holy Spirit would guide us into understanding how these words of truth, although they're very somber, would, in the final analysis, lead us to treasure what we have in the Lord Jesus so very, very much. Lord, uh, the scriptures declare that there is light and darkness. There is good, there is evil. There is right, there is wrong. There is truth, there is falsity. There are those who are Christians and those who aren't, even when they might think they are. So open to us the word by the working of your Holy Spirit. Enable us to be faithful to the text as we examine it and present it. May your truth shine forth. Be pleased to enable us to live as you want us to live, O Lord Jesus, as your disciples, as salt and light in this world. In your name, amen. I want us to consider how these words of the Lord Jesus here uh, are intended to correct the misguided ideas which the disciples had, which also the crowds had concerning the kingdom of God. This is most likely what Jesus is doing here because of what's just happened previously. Remember, right, right after the, the confession by Peter that Jesus was the Christ, Jesus went in to describe how he was going to suffer many things. He was going to be rejected by the chief priests and the scribes, that he was going to be killed before rising on the third day. Now, in essence, when when Peter responded to those words and began to rebuke Jesus, Peter was rejecting the idea of the cross, the idea that God's Son, the Messiah, would ever have to suffer and die in order to usher in the kingdom. Peter was rejecting, at that moment, the very thing which was the heart of the mission of the Father for the Son and sending Christ into the world. 
in all of that, as we saw last week, Jesus was teaching that there is no true Christ, no true Savior, no true Redeemer without the cross. That the cross was the very reason for which Jesus came. But now consider what Mark is recording in these next few verses. Uh, the narrative, what Jesus continues to say, since this happens shortly after, right after, Peter's misguided perspective. What Jesus is teaching is this, is that those who would be followers of him, those who would come after him, those who would pursue discipleship in the name of Jesus, in other words, those who would become Christians, must understand that there's no true follower of Jesus, no true disciple of Jesus, no true Christian without the cross. So the question is, what does the crossless Christian look like? Or what does it mean to follow Jesus in truth? Now that's the main focus of what I want us to see in these five verses this morning. I want us to see that, that there's a way in which Jesus is identifying Christians or those who think they're Christians apart from the cross. And then how we discern what it means to be truly a follower of Christ. Now, clearly the perspective is in the negative. But that's because these five verses are stated as a threat, as a warning. They are, in that sense, negative in their flow of thought. This is not what you might think to be a pep rally speech, uh, getting people jazzed up about following Jesus. This is a warning about how very serious it is to follow Christ. What a serious matter it is to be identified with Jesus Christ. And so in this passage, in these five verses, Jesus is going to be saying the same thing in three different ways. He's going to tell us this negative perspective that the pretender disciple, the pretender follower... The pretender is the crossless Christian who, first of all, will not practice self-denial. Secondly, will not esteem his soul the way he should. And thirdly, will not commit with true conviction to Jesus Christ. That's what he's going to say. It's the same truth uttered three different ways. Without the cross without understanding the cross, there is no real Christianity. So, the first point that, that we look at here, uh, beginning with verse 34, is going to be this. Truly, remember this is negative. Truly, you are a crossless Christian if you do not practice self-denial and taking up the cross. Now, the background here Jesus is saying to everyone who would identify with him, he's speaking to his disciples and the crowds as well, he's speaking to all those who would seek to come after him, who might want to follow him, that they must deny themselves and take up their cross. Now, stop for a moment and think. Think how these words would have shocked the ears 
of the disciples and the crowds. Now, it's not shocking to us because we have a very sanitized sense of the cross. Appreciate that. When we think about the cross of Jesus, it is incredibly sanitized because for 2,000 years we've been enculturated into seeing the cross as the centerpiece of the gospel, which is God's good news, a symbol of God's great love bringing salvation into this world, a great symbol of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. And so whenever we see a physical representation of the cross today, we see something that's clean, something that's crafted, something that's beautiful, something made out of precious metals or polished hardwoods. That's what we see. Again and again, the visual images of the cross in our culture are sanitized, clean, perfect, because over 2,000 years, our thinking is the cross, which represents the the awfulness of what happened on Good Friday, but nevertheless is the key to what happens on Easter Sunday, the resurrection. The cross is the good news. But our image of the cross is not the image in the minds of the disciples and the crowds who were thinking about following Jesus. Consider what the cross and crucifixion meant to them. The cross, crucifixion, was the favorite form of execution of non-Roman Empire citizens, and that was the vast majority of those who existed within the Roman Empire. It was recognized as the most horrible form of death ever invented. Rome used it in every land that it conquered because it was humiliating, because it was debasing, and because it was terrorizing. It was intended to make the conquered peoples feel debased, devalued, and powerless. And the Romans always made crucifixion even worse because of what they did beforehand. They connected all sorts and all manners of tortures ahead of time. There were the beatings and there were the floggings and other things. And, of course, our passion stories of the Lord Jesus describe these things to us. This is not unknown to us. Then the victim was forced to carry the cross beam of the cross all the way to the place of execution. And then he was stripped of his clothing. And it's not just men who were executed this way. Women were executed as well. Stripped of clothing, spike nailed to the cross beam through the wrists, and then the cross beam attached to the post or sometimes even to a tree. And then the post was erected, and then the feet were nailed to the post. So the victim was now vertical with all his weight hanging down. And then, of course, we've discussed around Easter time what all of that was like in terms of excruciating. Get the word excruciating. The heart of the word excruciating is crucifixion the excruciating pain that one who was executed this way had to endure. The pain, humiliation, the debasing, all of this. Now, just as not a rabbit trail, but as a slight aside, I think you need to see something here in terms of the Old Testament predicting this. The crucifixion passage in the Old Testament, besides Psalm 22, is that whole suffering servant passage of Isaiah 50. 2, beginning at 13, all the way through 53. 
So in Isaiah 52:14 and then 53:2 and 3, listen to these words. Verse 14. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. This is describing the effects upon the human body of a crucifixion. And then in the second part of verse 52, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. All of that speaks of the kind of public reaction to someone who's being crucified. It was so humiliating. It was so incredibly debasing to the dignity of a human being when this was done to them. Now, that's the mental picture of the word cross in the minds of the disciples of Jesus and the would-be followers of Jesus. Jesus is saying to each of them, here is the condition of of being my follower. You're going to have to deny yourself. You're going to have to take up your cross. So what then does self-denial and taking up one's cross actually mean? What does it look like? Well, the self, in terms of what Jesus is speaking of here, is what today we would call that psychological self that is so wrapped up in itself. The self is the selfish, self-centered, self-aggrandizing self. It is the me-first self. It is a self that has turned inward upon itself. Dr. Martin Luther, at the time of the Reformation, called this, basically we get the word incursive from it in English, incurvitus. The idea of the soul, the heart, turning inward upon itself as what sin actually does to us. It is the self that is consumed or obsessed with itself. It is the self that is self-protective. It is the self that is self-promoting. It is the self that loves itself ahead of God and ahead of others. And Jesus says that this self must be denied. This self must be put to death. This self must be crucified. Unless we take up this cross, unless we crucify self, we can't really be following Jesus. Now, in contrast, listen to what a crossless Christian is like. We see this within evangelical Christianity Men like Michael Horton have pointed this out. Going back a generation, two almost gener two generations ago, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was pointing this out. It's the person who comes to Jesus with the mistaken idea that Jesus came to give us greater self-fulfillment and a greater sense of success and prosperity in life. The crossless Christian believer believes that Jesus forgives us our sins just as we are. And even if we remain the same, even if we never change, we still have our sins forgiven. Now you may say, really? There are churches that preach and teach that? Well, let me just say that 13 years 
of listening to area youth pastors and other pastors in Bakersfield come to Bakersfield Christian High School and speak in chapel, I can tell you there is no question that that is what is being taught here in Bakersfield in evangelical churches. There's no question. That you are saved by the cross. Oh, blessed condition. You can sin as you please and still have remission. So, for this crossless Christian, sin really isn't the problem. The real problem, since I have Jesus, is I now need to get my life on track. I need help. But what kind of help do I need? Well, Jesus, I'm told, can help me. He can be my life coach. He can be my therapist. Michael Horton has noted that the crossless Christian knows that he can get help from Dr. Laura or from Dr. Phil. But he's told he can get the best help from Jesus. This is what Bonhoeffer meant when he said in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, this is cheap grace. Grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Instead of this cheap grace, Bonhoeffer said that when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. So, the first angle on this truth that Jesus is expressing is this. To be a Christian who takes up his cross, there must be this denial of this self. Now, the second thing that Jesus is going to say, uh, verses 35 through 37, is this. Truly, you are a crossless Christian if you value self more than you value your soul. If you value yourself more than you value your soul. And you'll see the distinction of what Jesus says. And once again, this isn't a different truth. It's the same truth. The way Jesus describes this is a little bit differently now. He continues to speak about our lives in these three verses. He continues to speak about our lives and our souls. His concern is this, that would-be disciples would value their lives in such a way that they would esteem self over esteeming soul. And he stresses that at each one of these three points, or three verses. So verse 35... Look at verse 35. Jesus is raising this issue of who are the real savers and who are the real losers of true life. Verse 35. For whoever would save his life, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. So the real loser is whoever seeks to save his life, this life in this world, or in other words, to save the self that Jesus says must be denied. The real saver is whoever loses his life in this world for the sake of Jesus and the gospel. The world looks at it one way. The world thinks preserving life, this life, is the most important thing. And Jesus is saying, care for your soul. 
is the most important thing. Now, you and I might struggle to see the application of this in our lives here in America. But not so our brothers and sisters in North Korea. Not so our brothers and sisters in Egypt who have faced the Muslim Brotherhood. Not so our brothers and sisters in Syria and Iraq under the influence and persecutions of ISIS. For so many of them, they have faced this choice, especially in the Middle East and Egypt. If you want to save your life, then simply renounce Christianity and become a Muslim. If you want to lose your life, refuse to convert. And Jesus says, those who convert in order to save their earthly lives lose their souls for eternity. They forfeit their souls. Then verse 36, where Jesus says, For what is a profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? So this decision that you're faced with to save your life and lose it, or to lose your life for Jesus and save it, that decision is based upon how we value the self versus how we value our souls. That's what he's saying. Jesus raises a rhetorical question there. Verse 36 requires a negative answer. Jesus says it's no profit at all because all of the value of the world and all of the value of the things in the world cannot match the value of the human soul. The world and this life is temporal. Moses reminds us of this in Psalm 90. Human life in this world is like the morning grass that flourishes, but by evening it withers and fade. The years of our lives, he says, are 70, or if by reason of strength they're 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone. They fly away. But in contrast, your soul will last for all eternity. To value the self over the soul means losing and forfeiting the soul forever. Then verse 37, again, a rhetorical question. What can a man give in return? Or the word means exchange. What can a man give in exchange for his soul? And the answer is nothing. There is nothing that a man can give to purchase or ransom or to buy his soul everlasting life. Whoever chooses this world and this life and forfeits his soul can never purchase it back. This is the consequence of valuing the soul over valuing valuing the self over valuing the soul. When self-esteem overrides soul esteem, then the soul is lost. Last point, but again, stressing the same truth. We're down to verse 38. 
Truly, you are a crossless Christian if you lack the commitment to stand for Jesus against the pressures and persecutions of the world. In verse 38, Jesus is going to mention three things. First, the issue of being ashamed of him. Secondly, that there's a day of reckoning coming when he returns in the glory of his Father with all of the holy angels. And then thirdly, Jesus says the threat is he will be ashamed of you then if you are ashamed of him now. Now, in our culture, where young people grow up in the church, their first real challenge often to their faith is when they go off to college or when they join the military or perhaps they go out into the workforce. This might be the first time that they really encounter people who have a great disrespect and a great sense of, of, of aggressiveness against Christians and Christianity. They encounter these, this dislike for the first time. They can feel, young people can feel quite intimidated by all this. And this is where the real temptation begins to be ashamed of the words of Christ and of Jesus himself. And many cave. Many cave in during this time to the pressures of the world. You know, my college days, four and a half decades ago, I know it's older than some of you, a friend said to me during that time, and he wasn't a Christian, he made this comment, if you do not have convictions you're willing to die for, then you'll never have any principles that you're going to live by. And I thought, what a true statement. What an incredibly accurate perspective. And that's exactly what Jesus taught. Uh, that's exactly the heart of the Christian faith. Jesus was warned us about not having true and authentic convictions about him in the gospel. We must have unshakable convictions. If we cannot stand for Jesus and the gospel, if we are ashamed of him, this is my thinking back then, if we're ashamed of him in this college world, then he's going to be ashamed of us when he returns again. And, of course, back in the early 70s, we thought Jesus was coming back before the end of the semester. We did not want to take those finals. Now, seriously, though, our culture has moved so far away from what things were like in 1970 to 74. The pressures are so much greater in our culture to be ashamed of Christ. So much greater in the military, so much greater in the secular workplace. Yet, all of these pressures pale in comparison to the daily struggles that are faced by our Christian brothers and sisters in other parts of the world. Especially in the Sudan, in Africa. You may realize that back in 2011, Sudan split north and south. Sudan proper, South Sudan. And it was done over Islamic Muslim convictions in the north, predominantly Christian and African religions in the south. In the southern part of Sudan proper, there's an area in the Nuba Mountains 
where those indigenous peoples are predominantly Christians. And since 2012, the Sudanese government that governs that area has waged non-stop war upon these Christian believers who live in the Nuba Mountains. More than 4,000 bombs have been dropped on this area, specifically targeting schools and hospitals and churches and crops that are growing and homes. But in spite of this, in spite of what is unrelenting persecution and genocidal aggression, the believers there still openly declare their faith in Jesus, even though it's illegal in Sudan to do so. They decorate brightly with bright colors the outside of their churches with Bible verses. They place crosses on their own thatched huts and write Bible verses on the walls of where they live. They know this makes them absolutely visible to the government, yet they will not hide their faith. They are committed to never being ashamed of Christ and his gospel. Serious, sober words. Remember when, when John the Baptist was baptizing and all these folks were coming out of Jerusalem? Even scribes and Pharisees and priests? Remember what John the Baptist said? You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? The coming of the kingdom does, does not come like your favorite team marching into town or into the stadium where we have some kind of rally for Jesus. The coming of the kingdom is so serious that if you embrace Jesus Christ, you will face increasingly the pressures of this world to be ashamed of Jesus and his gospel. And we see the tide of history. Tertullian, a century and a half into the Christian faith, said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The Christian faith in this world only has a small pocket now of people who are not persecuted, and they are called American citizens. The rest of our brothers and sisters in the world are shedding their blood for the name of Christ. But don't think it could not happen ever here. So it's a serious matter to be willing to deny yourself and to take up your cross and to follow Jesus. I think about how did the Apostle Paul, as the preaching the doctrines of grace, assimilate all of this? Because we're not preaching the law here. We're not preaching uh, some kind of new law under Jesus that discipleship or something like this is a new law. 
what we're really teaching is the transformation by grace. What Jesus is saying is that no one can deny himself and no one can pick up his cross and follow him apart from a miraculous, all-powerful working of God through the cross of the Lord Jesus that brings the death of Jesus to bear upon a person's life and the power of the resurrection in the person of the Holy Spirit to enable such a person to live for Jesus. And Paul put it this way. And this should be our verse as we read what Jesus says in Mark 8, 34. When he says to us, if any man should come after him, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. With the Apostle Paul, we should say, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I live in this flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And that's the gospel. Let's pray. Father, on that day when Jesus returns, may we be among those truly who loved his name, loved his coming, and stood firm even in the midst of the pressures and persecutions of this world, not counting our lives in this life of any value, but willing to live, even willing to die for the precious name of Jesus. Amen.